So we're looking at joy as our theme this, this uh, Advent. We've been asking the question, what is joy? What is joy? And the, the working definition that we've been working with is this, that joy is a deep sense of God's goodness and blessing regardless of circumstances. I've had some of you have got in touch and you've been, I think the penny's been dropping for you this, this Advent as to what joy really is. And uh, there's a lot of focus in our, in, in our daily life on, you know, what makes us happy, but what makes us happy does not necessarily make us joyful. Joy is something that is deep-seated and regardless of circumstances. As somebody described to me this week, it's like knowing that sense that God's got you. He's got you in His arms. He has you. So, we're looking at joy. And as we move through this um, this Advent season, uh, today's theme I want to look at is the joy of being together. Now, for some of you, you'll be thinking, oh my goodness me, how can we talk about the joy of being together when there are so few opportunities to be together, and even the opportunities that we'll have are surrounded by rules and regulations, new rules and regulations for us here in Scotland today, and for people, especially people in the, the south of England and in London and the southeast, really, really, really difficult. And for some of you, your Christmas plans that you've been making now no longer conform, and you're having to think about what you do about that. So, what to say about that? Well, the joy of being together is fundamental to who we are. And I want to have a look at that in, and in terms of um, Isaiah's vision of what, uh, of, of what the restored creation looks like. And I also want to have a look at through the lens of someone that we've been tracking with um, through, this, through this Advent season. So, what I want you to do first of all is to have a look at the people who are with you just now. Have a look at the people who are with you just now, okay? Now, for some of you, you'll be watching this on your own. So, if you're watching this on your own, feel free to go find a photograph or you maybe have someone on the mantelpiece or someone in your phone of people that you love very much. Just bring their picture to mind. Have a think about that. And have a think about the joy that you have being in each other's company. Have a think about the joy that togetherness brings with your, with your parents, your brothers and sisters, your children, your children's children, your friends and neighbors, your colleagues. For many of us, we spend as much time with our colleagues as we spend with anyone. And some of those people, just, just be in their presence brings us joy. Do you ever get that sense when you, you go, you go to, to a place and you find someone there who you know and love, you did not expect them to be there? What's your response? It's kind of like, oh, there they are. I have that response to so many of you. And when I come into church and I see it's like, oh, brilliant, I haven't seen so-and-so in ages, or it's just that reassurance. And they might not even know how your week's gone or, or what, but just their presence there makes all the difference. And those are the people with whom we experience the joy of being together. Now, that joy, um, to experience that joy, we need to be vulnerable. We need to be vulnerable. I, I was thinking about this. So I grew up in quite a traditional church. It was quite stiff, quite formal. And people didn't talk about their relationship with Jesus in joyous terms. 
They tended not to. They tended to, to behave as if church was something good to do, which it is, and that worship was something that needed to happen, which it does, but that the carrying out of that was something that you did because it was right, but not necessarily joyous. Now, for many of us, that would be on, line, that would be on par with, say, exercise. Yep. As when, when the app's running and it's telling me you've got to do 20 burpees, I never greet that news with joy, especially when it lulled me into a false sense of security because it was 10 burpees the round before, and I just kind of grit my teeth and do it, especially if Diane's watching. But our relationship with God should not be like that. I mean, at times, we, we need to think about doing the right thing, but it should flow from a place of joy, from being together, as should our relationships with other people. It should flow from that place of joy for being together, because we were made, we were made to be in community. Do you understand this? Okay. Now, who's going to volunteer and replace me here to explain the Trinity? Does anybody want to do that? They're all laughing because you're like, no, no, don't make me do that. But the thing is, is that our Jewish forebears, they believed in one God, yes? Every morning, a faithful Jewish person will say the Shema from Deuteronomy. The Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why was that important? Because the nations round about them worshipped lots of different gods, and those different gods had different opinions about everything. And so, when we talk about God's will, there might be a variety of God's will if you are Greek or if you're Babylonian, and you might want to follow your God as opposed to another God, and there'll be some story about how those gods fought it out at some point in the past. For the Jews, though, when they talked about the will of God, they were talking about one thing. So when that God said to Moses, worship the Lord your God, you know, have no other gods before Him, that was the indication that there was one way to do things. When we worship one God, we can be moral, deeply moral, in a way that we can't when there's many different opinions. And even though it can sometimes be hard to figure out what God's will is, there is a will. We do know that God has a will. So, Jews worship one God. But then, they were praying for the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, Isaiah had, had warned them, warned them before. Remember the destruction of that first temple? Isaiah's before that time. And he's, he's warning them. And the group of prophets around Isaiah are warning the, the people of Israel, saying, be careful. Be careful. We've strayed away from worshiping God. And actually, Isaiah, like the other prophets too, would warn other kings as well. Be careful. We're straying from what is God's will. But he promised that one would come who was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you think about the mechanics of it. How does that work? How can God become part of creation and still be God? Does he vacate the post of being God? What Christians came to understand very, very quickly, so quickly that it's assumed in the earliest of the books in the Bible, things like 1 Corinthians and Galatians, just take it for granted that Jesus was an agent of creation. Think about that. This is, this is so early. This isn't an idea that developed, as uh, many academics thought a wee while ago. It's there in the earliest documents that we have in the New Testament. And so, that story of Jesus being an agent of creation, that, 
well, that means that God was with us. God was in Christ. There you go. God was in the Messiah. Yahweh, the God of the Jews, I am that I am that I am, was in the Messiah. Jesus, Yeshua. We got that? So, God the Son could pray to God the Father. And how did that work? It worked in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, from right at the beginning, at the end of Matthew's gospel, we get this wonderful, wonderful little, baptize them, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that formulation, that formulation is right there through the New Testament. It's assumed. It took the church a long time to figure it out. But that same challenge that you have trying to explain the Trinity is that, I often say in, in the Scots way, it's better felt than tell. It's better felt than tell. It's better experienced than it is explained. Because you know that by the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Son is with you. You know Jesus is with you. And the, and the love of the Father is with you. And that Jesus prays for you at the Father's right hand. But we still worship one God. There's still one God's will. There's still a morality that we are called to live out. There's still a purpose which God, singular, God has for our lives. One God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that help? I hope so. So, we were made for community. We were made to be together. The Godhead is community. Now, here is Jonathan Sachs, who passed away at the start of November, and we've been tracking with him. Um, he wrote a book that was published earlier this year, and I've been reading, and I want to share with you a little passage. You remember last week, we had a look at… he was sharing some research that had been done into Sardinian um, people who, in villages where the men lived as long as the women. Do you remember that? And that that's absolutely remarkable, because that's not usually the case. And guys, if that's news to you, sorry. Although, it does mean you get five or six years out of doing the dishes, I'm just saying. But, in these Sardinian villages, the men lived as long as the women, and indeed, the life expectancy was enormous. And that's because they valued their older people. They valued them. They were a part of the community they wanted uh, that they were wanted, needed, and indeed they didn't retire until they didn't stop working the fields so they're in their 80s or 90s. What I want to do with you is just read you a bit following on right from that, because when I read the next bit, I thought, I need to share this too. And it's about the fact that we're made for community, okay? So, here we go. Are you sitting comfortably? You got your blankets and your cuddly toys. make sure I start from the right bit. That's the end. Here's the beginning. So, as I, as I read last week, in this Sardinian village, or vi villages, um, this, is, this was their attitude towards their elderly people. The elderly were respected and honored and constantly visited by members of their family, especially by the young. They were never left alone. Pinker, who's the lady who did the research, calls this the village effect. It's a striking example of the power of social connectedness. A close connection to friends and family is part of mental and physical health, a sense of a life that matters. And then he goes on to say this, this sense of community is something religion has provided at important junctures in history. 
This was particularly so during the first half of the 19th century in Britain and America, where there were great social dislocations as people moved from villages to cities during the Industrial Revolution. This was a traumatic experience for many. Sociologists describe it as a move from Gemeinschaft to Gesellschaft, from the face-to-face -face relationships that predominate in small communities to the anonymous encounters of strangers that make up much of city life. It took a sustained effort of outreach. Listen to this. It took a sustained effort of outreach by churches in both countries to recreate communities in urban environments. And this enabled them to combat some of the negative consequences of social dislocation, from drunkenness to, to the abuse of children. Judaism performed a similar role for immigrant Jewish families in America and Britain, who had known wrenching dislocation, fleeing from persecution, and finding themselves strangers in a strange land. Almost immediately, they, they organized themselves into Landmannschaft, the organizations, mutual aid societies based on town or city of origin. These gave support to new arrivals, helping them to find places to live and work, assisting them through some of the cultural and bureaucratic challenges, and providing financial support where people were ill or out of work. I saw this myself. My early years were spent among first-generation immigrant Jews who had come to Britain from Eastern or Central Europe before, in some cases after the war. They arrived with nothing, yet within one generation, almost all of them had moved out of the inner-city ghettos and begun to make a life for themselves and their families. Their children mostly went to university and entered the professions. Jews, like my parents, were poor, but they were rich in social capital. They had strong families and immensely supportive communities. They had an almost Calvinist ethic of hard work together with a strong respect for scholarship and study, and these values were embodied in communities that they made or joined, and people helped one another. Judaism tends to have a strong communal dimension. As one famous joke has it, are you ready? Levi the atheist is asked, why does he not believe, when he does not believe, does he regularly go to synagogue? And his reply, I go with Markovitz. Markovitz talks to God, and I go talk to Markovitz. This may be true generally of minority faiths, and especially of immigrant communities. In a profound way, religion is the consecration of community, the place where our togetherness under God is given shape and strength. And then he continues, we are not made to live alone. Not only is the unprecedented atomization of modern life bad for our health and happiness, it's also dangerous because it makes us vulnerable to the dangers that lie ahead. Turbulence, change, unpredictability. This was written before lockdown, just before. When the environment changes, people who are members of strong and diverse groups are a huge advantage. They contain people with different strengths, variegated knowledge, diverse skills, and by working together, they can negotiate their situation with effectiveness and speed. They have collective resilience. Loneliness is the single greatest fear of millennials. Are you hearing me? Loneliness is the single greatest fear of millennials. According to 2016 Viceland UK census, it ranks higher than fear of losing a home or a job. 42% of millennial women are more afraid of loneliness than a diagnosis of cancer. We're not made to live alone. We are not made 
to live alone. I hope something in there gave you an understanding of the richness that comes when we are together, the joy that comes from being part of that renewed community. And it's fascinating listening to Jonathan Sachs as an Orthodox Jew because his experience and understanding is grounded in the books of the Torah that would have shaped Mary and Joseph's experience, of Elizabeth and Zechariah's experience, of all of the Jewish people there. It's, it's, a, it's a link back into their understanding, their identity, and we can see so much of it that was part of our church experience when we were growing up, those of us who are old enough to remember and who were taken to church. Why were the Girls' Light Brigade formed? Why were there was a women's guildry? Why was there boys' brigade? What was that all about? And it was about generating that village-like support for people in the midst of our new urban environments where instead of living in communities of hundreds, we lived in communities of thousands. And you could not possibly be close to everyone. And that interconnectedness was also at the heart of the church communities that held together those new towns. For Gorebridge, it was the gunpowder factory and the deep mines that meant that the hamlets of Gorebridge and of Gowks Hill and of Stubb Hill and of Arniston were swallowed up in this bigger town. And that's true of everywhere, too. If you look closely enough, you can see it. You can still see the dairy in Gilmerton. And as I discovered when you walk out of, you can still see some of the evidences of the dairy in Cross Street that was still milking cows when I was at primary school in Dalkeith. Even if you go to Covent Garden and work your way towards the British Museum, eventually you will pass a dairy just by the British Museum that used to milk cows in what is now miles from the nearest pasture where any cow is fed. And we need that togetherness. That togetherness is intrinsic to who we are. Right. Shall we continue? We've been looking at… We've been looking at various scriptures, and I want us to read this together as a reminder of the togetherness that's in this, first in the Psalms, and then we're going to have a bit of a look at Isaiah. Let's read this passage together from Psalm 106, verses 4 and 5. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, and that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. There's, this is such a rich passage. In here, the understanding is that God's inheritance is His people, and that the help that God gives to each one of us is couched in the help that He's giving us all, that there's no help for the individual without the blessing to the multitude. And there's no help for the multitude without blessing to the individual. The two are intrinsically interconnected. Why does God rescue us? Why does God give us gifts? Why does the Holy Spirit pour the love of God and the presence of Jesus into our lives, but to make us fit to be with one another? As the book of Proverbs will say, a three-stranded cord cannot be broken. And that togetherness that we have, one with another and one with 
God, who is one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the source of the joy that we have with being together. It's God's good blessing. It's His blessing. It's His goodness, regardless of circumstance. Let's look on. Now we're into Isaiah. Just at some point, find a bit of a Bible app or whatever, and look at all the joy passages in Isaiah. When you consider the difficulty the nation was in, as Isaiah and, and that community of prophets around Isaiah were, were prophesying into that situation in Israel of impending doom, it's incredible because the trust is also there for restoration. Let's read this together. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. you recognize that? Recognize that verse? When Jesus is driving out the money changers who are taking a healthy cut from the poor people who are buying the sacrifices at the temple, He drives them out with a whip he's fashioned, evidence that though Jesus, um, though Jesus knew a better way than war, he, he wasn't a pacifist. He drives them out, turns out the money changers' tables, and what does he say? It says that my Father's house will be called a house of prayer, a house of prayer. He's quoting straight from Isaiah. Again, here's this idea that there's something that God's doing in us together. He's doing in us together. That there's a destination which God has in mind for all of us that we see glimpses of in our church family. We see glimpses of in our human family. We see glimpses of in our, the communities that we are part of and that we trust God to move towards. Friends, if we are a wonderful church family and the community round about us is going to rack and ruin, that is not the coming of the kingdom. Do you hear me? If we have a wonderful church community where we feel loved and supported and sustained and the community round about us is going to rack and ruin, that is not the coming of the kingdom. When we pray for the coming of the kingdom, Jesus said we should pray like this. We did it earlier on. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not just in the congregation, not just in the Kirk Session meeting, not just when we gather together for prayer, but in the hills and the streets and the farms and the businesses and the communities around about us. We are here for community transformation, the togetherness that God has given us, not just with other Christians, but with other people who don't yet know Jesus is, or have a vague inkling. That's the joy that Isaiah is calling the Jewish nation to, to be a light to the nations. And I've said to you before, when Jonathan Sachs was, was um, sharing, he was asked to speak at the General Synod of the Church of England. And he, and he said very humbly to them, he said, do you know there's very, very few. He says, there's about six Jews in China, so there'll be seven synagogues. I've said this to you before. And of course, there's more than six Jews in China, but there's very, very few. And they're persecuted like the Christians are persecuted too, I might add. He says, but there's 50 million, 60 million, maybe as many as 100 million Christians in China. Our call was to be a light to the nations. You have done what we were called to do. Friends, that togetherness has always been at the heart of… It's, 
yes, it's about my relationship with God, but there is no my relationship with God if it wasn't for God's creation, Father, Son, and Spirit, God's calling of Abraham and the number of, of, of descendants outnumbering the stars in the sky and the number of grains of sand on the seashore. You are part of an us the moment you realize that it's me and Jesus. <laughs> Inextricably. Inextricably. And there's a joy that comes from that togetherness. There's a joy that comes from being together. Let's have a look at one more scripture. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. And he displays his glory in Israel. I love this. I love this. I love this. One of the hundreds of circumstances where God decides to call Israel by Israel's original name, which was Jacob, which means cheat, <laughs> means twister, means don't play him at poker, don't play him at Ludo, okay? Not even for polos like we did in sixth year. Don't do it because he'll cheat. That's what Jacob means. Some of you are called James or Jim are going, oi. <laughs> but it's what it means. But here Jacob is, sing for joy, says the prophet. You heavens, praise him, you heavens, and all it's about. We, we, we shared that on Thursday at our prayer meeting. And a big thank you to Maria for leading us in prayer on Thursday at our candlelight prayer service. It was wonderful. The heavens will declare the glory of God, writes the psalmist. The togetherness of creation. You see, if we just take um, a godless point of view about the universe, most of the universe is cold and dark and inhospitable, and if you were there, your eyes would pop out in the vacuum and you'd be dead in, in seconds. And we'd, We're on this tiny little, tiny little planet. Carl Sagan, the cosmologist, spoke meaningfully when as it left the solar system, um, Voyager was turned to take one last picture of Earth. And less than a pixel in size, eventually a photograph came through. You can look it up. And Carl Sagan called it the pale blue dot, where Earth occupies one pixel from that camera's perspective as this man-made object, the first man-made object to leave the solar system. This tiny little backyard in the cosmos in which we inhabit. And he said, everyone you love, every event in history, everything that has ever happened has happened on that pale blue dot. It's quite a thought, isn't it? All of it. And I would love to have had a conversation with Carl Sagan to say that pale blue dot is high in God's affections as you are. For the cold, dark deepness of space is not an indication of God's lack of existence, but of His majesty and grandeur and the size of the canvas He decided to paint us into. The heavens, the heavens are singing with joy for what He has done. What happens in Jesus at the restoration of His people what happens as God becomes one of us has effects for the entire cosmos, the whole of the universe. 
Some of you will be aware of this. A big thank you to Fee. I love, I love looking up in the night sky. I can always get dreamy looking up. Always get dreamy. Because you see the constellations and you see the stars and you realize that if the lights were duller, those of you who have been to the remote places of this world will know that actually out there, just listening to Alistair talk about the night sky when he was in the Arctic Circle, and you can actually see the Milky Way with your bare eyes. Our ancestors knew this. We don't because of streetlights. <laughs> we can barely see. But thousands upon thousands of stars in the night sky that Abraham would have been aware of where God told him that his descendants would outnumber them. And something's going to be happening in the heavens. So thank you for Fee for pointing this out. Tomorrow night, for the winter solstice, also I might add, the anniversary of the day I first became a Christian, 21st of December, something's going to happen in the heavens. You may know about this. Here's a picture. Now, a great conjunction is happening a great conjunction of the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn. And as they conjoin, it will be visible to the naked eye. They are close enough to earth that we will see it as a bright star low in the sky. I am not going to pretend to be an expert on these things, like my good friend Francis. So I would just point you in the direction of the internet. If you look up um, uh, th there'll be details from the sky at night. They'll tell you how to see it. There's endless videos. You can even see a live stream picture of Jupiter and Saturn. The picture I've got here, um, that's not what it looks like at the moment, but those are genuine photographs from Earth of Jupiter and Saturn. And one of the candidates for the Christmas star that guided the wise men to Jesus is that it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Because a star to them was something that was bright in the sky, and those things were moving together. And for the ancients, the conjoining of bright objects in the firmament, which would most often be um, planets, sometimes comets, that would be an indication. That was a portent in the heavens that something was happening on the earth. So it's quite possible that this was a Christmas star. Um, people often talk about the fact that it's religion or science. Let me point out that some of the best astronomical data that we have from the medieval world and indeed the ancient world came from profoundly religious people. The Vatican has an observatory. It still does. The Vatican employs astronomers. I'm just going to point that out for you, just in case you have one of those lame conversations where it's, I believe in science, not religion. Oh, well, why don't you have a look through the, uh, the uh, Vatican's astronomical almanac and find better data from the Middle Ages as to who was doing what. Indeed, many of the people who were turning their backs on faith in Jesus decided to go chasing how to turn lead into gold rather than observing the sort of things that are useful now. Um, of course, we now know that you can turn lead into gold. It's just a lot more expensive to do that than digging gold out of the ground. Just saying. Now, oh, what's a shame. So, Christians have observed the observer. Indeed, the scientific explosion happened in the Christian West precisely because we thought that the universe was made by one God. Therefore, its laws would be uniform. Therefore, looking at it was looking at His handiwork, and we might want to do that, that we bring glory to God when we observe what can be observed. And so, this is one of the candidates for the Christmas star. Who knows? We'll find out one day when we get home. Um, we'll find out one day. 
It's the first time this has been visible to the naked eye since the 1200s. And uh, there's not many of us who are around at that point. So do have a look. Do have a look. It would be wonderful. And you'll be able to You'll be able to be talked to what, where to look in the sky, and you maybe see it. If you do see it, I want to know over the next few days. So the joy of being together. Think about the wise men who undertook that journey, and I've, I've, I've spoken about this at great length at other times. don't want to speak about it much today, but the, the wise men following this star, following something, whether it was planetary, whether it was Halley's Comet, whether it was… who knows what it was. Um, whatever it was… They decided to make that journey so they could be together. They could mark the birth of this king. Think about the, the shepherds and the angels. The shepherds out there together looking after those sheep, and they decided to leave their flocks for which they were responsible to go to see the king that was born. The joy of being together. Let's read that account together, shall we? Um, I haven't got the whole text up here, but I'll give you a… Your bit starts at suddenly. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This is your bit. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace on those on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them, and then gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. It's an us thing. It's an us with the angels. It's an us with the shepherds. It's an us. It's, you know, let us go and see. They didn't just send a single representative. The joy of being together. And of course, the joy of being together for Mary and Joseph. We've spoken about this. That Jewish bond that has been so strong over the years that the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have maintained for thousands of years their distinctiveness. For thousands of years. Even when it was threatened, we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah. Even when it was threatened, they managed to do that. And there's Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the joy of being together. The joy of being together. So, friends, this Christmas, we need to find a way to be joyful together. And I know that there is… Um, I know that there are restrictions, and you will have your thoughts about those, the wisdom or otherwise of those restrictions. I don't want to talk about that just now. That's not my task. But the truth of the matter is, is that it is not good for us to be alone. It is not good for us. It's not good for us. And so, those we know who will be alone, be it on their own or just a couple or whatever it may be, we need to find creative ways to make sure that this Christmas they have someone. They have someone, somehow. 
I said this to my mom. I said, Mom, you're in your mid-80s. This might be our last Christmas with you. There is no way you're going to be on your own. And however we can configure it, however the rules fall, and we will look at them carefully, we will make sure that she's not on her own. Friends, this is serious stuff. Um, if you still have any children listening with you, if they haven't dived off to their machines, this is this bit's probably not for them. If, if you're teen and up, this is for you. One of the things I do is take funerals. That's how I know that there was a really bad flu epidemic, 99-2000. Worse than we've seen this past year. Worse. Worse than COVID-19. Ask any undertaker. 99-2000 was, was grim. 6th of January is the epicenter for suicides in the year. That's the most likely day we're going to lose people. And so it's not only people who are living on their own, I want you to keep an eye out. I want you to be asking people how they're doing. Because we don't want folks in the privacy of their own home thinking that it would be better if they weren't here. Because of the way that suicide statistics are gathered, because we have to be very, very careful, how it takes, actually takes a couple of years before the figures are released by the Office of National Statistics. Statistics. But I'll tell you this, they're up. And they're up by a lot. And some of you know that from firsthand. Let's look out for one another. I also know that, that the events of things like mental health difficulties have gone up. Let's look out for one another. So whatever it is that's isolating people, whatever it is, if you hear of someone who's not well, send them to hospital. Make sure they get the care they need. Friends, there are many ways you can die. COVID-19 isn't top of the list. And we need to take care of one another. Wherever you live in this world, we need to do that for one another. Do you hear me? Because that is God's will for us. Because there is a joy in being together. And all of us will meet our end some way, some place. But that promise of a renewed creation where things are as they should be, as the lion will lie down with the lamb, as Isaiah will put it, that's our inheritance. And indeed, we are His inheritance. And not just the general inheritance of the Jewish people, but the specific inheritance of Emmanuel, God with us, born of Mary, born of God, in a manger to rescue us. We need not fear death, for the keys of death and hell belong to Him. May we know that joy of being together. Thank you so much for the Sunday clubbers. Thank you. Thank you for just generating so much joy. And I was, I was just genius the way you managed to keep the households together and do the narration and everything. Thanks to Josh for filming it. Thanks. Thank you so much. What, what, that was just wonderful. And you can rewind when this goes live. You can re we'll put it up separately too. It'll be a separate, and you can share that around everybody that you want to, to bring them some Christmas cheer. But that baby Jesus, who was born God with us, is also God for us. Do you hear me?
And He hears us when we pray. So the last thing we're going to do today is we're going to gather our hearts and our thoughts in prayer. And those people who you're sitting with, and those people on the pictures that you picked up at the start, and those people who are in your heart home, and those people you know who are going through a rough time at the moment, let's pray for them. Let's do so now. May we pray.